Becky, look at her banner. It's beauty, bitch. Warning, this show contains adult content, strong language, mature themes, discussions of sexuality, politics, triggers, and <gasps> feminism. Listener discretion and or earphones are advised. Welcome to Bitchstory, the podcast about women in history that were mm, overlooked. I'm one of your hosts, Kelly McLean. I'm the other host. They, or maybe just Kelly, calls me Smarty Pants Lisa. Uh, here in Bitchtopia, we bitch explain about feminism and relevant historical and political issues. Mm-hmm. My official title, per me, is Doctress of Bitchology. I really like it. I have a PhD from Google University. Excellent. My title is Bitch Historian. So bestowed on me by Kelly, mm. which is fine, I suppose. I have degrees in history and literature, and I am indeed a history nerd. She's also a Capricorn, which matters because I'm also an astrologer, and I write horoscopes every week called, wait for it, Bitchscopes. It almost seems like there's a theme around here around the word bitch. Mm-hmm. Almost. Uh huh. All right, bitches, thanks for listening. Please subscribe and review, particularly on Spotify and Apple, if you would, so we can continue to sing the praises of all the unsung bitches of the world. Yes, please, and thank you. You can also visit anchor.fm forward slash bitchstory, and if you feel so inspired or moved by the spirit, you can click the support button. We are also open to sponsorships, so feel free to ping us with your slightly annoying commercials. Thank you. <laughs> hey, Lise. Subject Where the hell are you? Huh? Oh, it's been a week, you know. Oh, my God. Yeah. <laughs> are we ever going to get on the air and go, oh, my God, I'm so good. I'm great. I'm so good. I know. So boring this week. Nothing happened really. <laughs> Just I mean, I, yeah. I mean, in the grand scheme of things, I don't have anything to complain about. But, oh, sister, I have plenty of fucking things to complain about. Let me tell you. Yes. <sighs> so most of them are just about living on planet Earth. So annoying lately. It's just I, the past five yeah. years. <laughs> for right. the most part. <laughs> or more than that, maybe, yeah. <clears throat> yeah. Well, um, let's just jump into some news stories. As usual, I have sounded fine until I get on the air and then I get this gravelly thing in my throat. <clears throat> I do not understand what you this is. Jan's Joplin thing going on. I, I like it. I, I don't even think it sounds good. It just sounds like I have like pebbles in my throat. Sorry. I don't know. And <laughs> I trust me. with pebbles? No, I don't know. And it's not like my vocal cords don't get exercise around here yelling at cats. So <clears throat> I don't get it. But anyway. So uh, our first little bullet point in the news. Oh, today is March 24th. What is today? Yes. March 24th. The year 2022. And... Um, for the last several days, there have been um, hearings to hopefully <laughs> confirm um, Judge Brown Jackson, Katanji Brown Jackson. Did I get all her names in there? I think so, yep. Yep. And um, and so we've been watching the Ask Clown Idiot Circus ask her completely irrelevant and 
fucking insulting questions. And then insulting. It, yeah, in a in a huge shocker, Mitch fuckface McConnell. I was trying to think of something wittier than fuckface that kind of <laughs> was more Mitch like how Mitch. Yeah. Yeah, something original. But anyway, he was like, I can't confirm her. It's going to be a no for me. And we're like, okay, fucking ugly Simon Cowell of the Senate. Just sit down. <laughs> Plus, I just, I mean, if you can imagine, I mean, like her poise and her dignity that she's been, you know, mm-hmm. and she's also answered the questions, even though some of them were just ridiculous. Absolutely ridiculous. Um, But like the sniveling, like snot-faced whiny responses they got from their client. And they're just like, oh, we have to confirm him. He was blackout drunk all during law school. <laughs> Why would we confirm him? But yeah, he sailed right on through. God, the, the Kavanaugh hearings. But still... some, she was, she has like the highest, rel, you know, ratings of any. <laughs> just yeah. So I don't yeah, know. Yeah, I, um, the Kavanaugh hearings still make the hair on the back of my neck stand up a little bit. He has surprised me on a couple of rulings um, in regards to what abortion some kind of women's issue he surprised me where he was relatively it seemed to be moderate or in the middle where he didn't just vote party line so <clears throat> but I feel, I'm still I, mean, not I feel like nothing has gotten rubber stamped I mean uh, there's been some disappointing rulings for sure but yeah. or things that they just refuse to look at but I feel like nothing's gotten really just rubber stamped all the way through. Yeah. But still, he's a sniveling prick. But anyway. True. But so many are. Um, anyway, <laughs> fingers crossed that she can be confirmed. I believe even because what happens when Mitch stands up and rah, 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 rah with his shriveled up asshole face is yeah. that he sets up a party line vote. So if. Mitch says, we can't, then it sort of sets the precedent among the party to, you know, vote down the party line. And so that's not good. And it's not, what is the word I'm looking for? I don't know. Um, intelligent, yeah. free thinking, wise. It's not democracy. Moral. <laughs> what? It's not democracy either. No, exactly. But I think she can still be confirmed without any of the stupid Republicans um, because it's a 50-50 split. And then uh, <clears throat> uh, Kamala Harris will break the tie if there is one, which I'm guessing I, maybe not. There might be. There's been a couple Republicans this week that have surprised me with a couple things. Um, so, you know, there might be a couple outliers. Well, and I feel like... Um some people whose jobs are on the line for midterms that are oh, trying wow. to appear a little more moderate so might gross. be so inclined to, um, you know, side with the Democrats. But I don't think I don't think we need the I don't think we need any votes on that side, except for we can't really depend on cinema and jackass from Virginia. Yeah. Um. So I don't know. It depends. I feel I feel like she'll get. I mean, she hasn't done anything to warrant not getting confirmed. No. So um, except that she I has the audacity to be a woman and oh my god, be black. And smart and yeah. Right and smarter than them and yeah. If if you didn't see the 
some of the questions, not like I watched it all day because my blood pressure would probably kill me, yeah. but, um, I, I made it through about 10 minutes. Yeah. Just, just little clips. And I was like, what, how is this even relevant? What they're asking her about her faith? How often do you go to church? I don't feel like can that you can imagine, be separated like, going to a job interview. No, but he asked you like what your faith is. Here's the thing. There's so many damn Catholics going on in the Supreme court and have been like historically, when are the Republicans, you know, questioning, well, can you separate your faith from your decisions? <laughs> I don't know what, <laughs> what happens. Like yeah. trans people want to swim. It's against God. Oh God. Something happens to me when I talk about old white Republican men, I turn into who are the two old men on the Muppets that sit up on the balcony? Um, Statler and Warhoff. I'm pretty sure they're gay. Yeah, well, I turn into them or <laughs> some some bastardized version of Sam the American Eagle <laughs> when I'm imitating them. <laughs> anyway, they're idiots. And um, I yeah. feel <clears throat> bad that she's had to try to keep a straight face to, through this because some of it was just absurd. Well, and it's mortifying to me that people in other countries might be watching this thinking, is this what America's? <laughs> These are Americans? Well, you know, like, is this what we're being, you know, they're painting us with that brush? It's, ugh. I don't know. I <clears throat> I think that America has painted itself with its own fucked up, covered in shit brush for <laughs> a good couple decades now. So most of the, the rest of the world probably is like, ew, mm, we're not a fan of that artist. Mm-mm. Um. I went I went to the store yesterday, the grocery store last night coming home from work. And you know how in the parking lot house sometimes they have those um, you know, in between the parking spaces they have like a median that sort of yeah. comes out from the middle sidewalk. Mm-hmm. So I was coming out and this guy in I think it was a Charger, it was like a really nice kind of muscle car. He's there's a lady trying to go the the correct way down and he's trying to pull out and block her so he can go the wrong way. So he guns it out of there and he high centers himself on that median. <laughs> and then he just like, and like his back tires just spinning. Cause they're about an inch and a half off the ground now. Oh, I love it. And he keeps like getting in the car and like getting out, looking at his wheel and then getting back in and trying it again. But in the meantime, he's sort of blocking the whole thing. But I'm just like, this is pretty much like our the patriarchy. It's the patriarchy. Yeah. It's, it's this toxic masculinity in a nutshell. You know yes. what I mean? It's like you, all you're doing is high centering yourself. Yeah. And making yourself look like wasting gas, polluting yeah. the air. And that's an excellent illustration of patriarchy. <laughs> I am a big fan of this. I like it. Good job. I was going to go back in the store and get some popcorn and sit there and watch, but I was like, ah, I should get home. See, I would have been like trying to stealthily take a photo and oh, then I, I would have been. Money. I took one girl. I'm going to send it to you right now. Oh, awesome. <laughs> and then I would have been writing a, a blog post about it um, <laughs> in, you know, poetic comparative language and whatnot. Um, that's hysterical. Um, well, let's see, where do we go from here? Um, let's go to a male birth control pill has popped up in the news. Let me read this little snippet for you. Snippet, no pun intended. (laughs) (laughs) I guess that's probably just what needs to happen anyway. Um, a male birth control pill is set to go into human clinical trials this year after showing tremendous effectiveness in male mice. The pill, which was developed by researchers from the University of Minnesota, reportedly works by targeting the uter- This is just boring, blah, 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 vitamin A, something, something. <laughs> According to the 
American Association for the Advancement of Science, vitamin A, which they're a big fan of that letter, it seems, um, plays an important role in cell growth, differentiation, including sperm formation, embryonic development, blah, blah. When testing the birth control on mice, researchers, researchers found it effectively made them temporarily sterile with no side effects. The mice then became fertile again within four to six weeks after they stopped receiving the pill. So here's my thoughts on this. I would never in a million fucking years trust any man, even one that I loved, to take a pill to prevent me from getting pregnant. See, that's what I thought too, but I don't play on that team and I try not to throw stones, but I was thinking the same thing. I'm like, mm, I don't know. I don't trust it. <laughs> I mean, not to just be, uh, oh, what's the opposite of a misogynist? What, what am I if I'm a, not a misogynist? I'm a misanthropist. Okay, so maybe I am a misanthropist, whatever. I mean, I love my husband, but, um, you know, like men don't remember to pick up things at the grocery store. Men don't remember dates. Men, I am generalizing. And if there is a man actually brave enough listening to this show, I would like you to please write me a scathing email telling me what an asshole I am. But thank you for listening. Anyway, I just would not take the, <laughs> the, the rent control of my uterus and put it in the hands of a man, period. I love the idea of men having to take responsibility um, and women not just having to shoulder all of it. But I think we just have big trust issues between the genders that have to be resolved and maybe never will be. I don't know. Maybe in a marriage this could work, but I just, I just don't see how this is a, a viable solution to things. See, that's what I was thinking, too, is like if you're married and somehow like she can't take the pill because for hormonal reasons or right. things and the husband says, OK, then I will. Then she at least has a little more, you know, not really control, but monitoring. Sure. sure. And there's I can't. Yeah, there's lots of women who can't take one thing or another. Um, right. I can't take the birth control pill because I would be in prison. Makes me very, very angry. You think I'm angry on this show? No. No, no, this is Holly Hobby version of Kelly. Um, I, I'm homicidal when I take the pill. So that's bad because they don't have eyeliner in prison. So I have an IUD. But anyway, um, yeah, I just, I don't know. It just doesn't, it's, I don't know. I would love to hear other opinions, but it, I'm just, I am very skeptical. <laughs> just saying. So, but. Yeah, agree. Um, Moving on to mm, better topics, perhaps. Uh, so Putin, um, he was very mad. And so he was pissed off about all the, the sanctions that are being placed on Russia because he's a dick. And so he placed personal sanctions on a whole bunch of politicians in the United States. Joe. Not a Republican, but anyway, go on. Right. <laughs> exactly. So President Biden was, he got his sanctions slapped on him. And uh, Jen Psaki, the, um, what's her title? Um, press secretary. Press secretary, thank you. And I love her. Love Even her. I can't remember her title. I love her. Um, <laughs> and a bunch of other people, including Hillary Clinton, who responded by saying, do you want to say what she said? Uh, I, I think she says something like, I'd like to thank uh, Putin for this Lifetime Achievement Award. <laughs> <laughs> yes. 
I don't know if I've ever heard Hillary deliver such a perfect zinger before that one. I mean, she's had a few, but that one I just thought was amazing. Well, and people love to hate Hillary, but she called the former guy a Russian asset right to Mm -hmm. his stupid Mm -hmm. face. Mm -hmm. So you got to respect her for that, honestly. Oh, and she was right about everything. As hard yeah. as it's been to be all like the rest of us for the last mm-hmm. four years, it's got to be near impossible to be Hillary. Because oh, every day she's like, I tried to tell you. <laughs> I think that's how my mom feels about so much of my dating history. But yes, everybody's other show. Oh. Yeah. Um, <laughs> yeah. Anyway, <laughs> that was genius. So, I mean, the sanctions on personal people just means they can't um, they can't. Like if they have any assets over there, those are frozen. They can't get them and they can't do a bunch of stuff that they weren't going to do anyway, I'm sure. So, yeah, that was kind of stupid. Yeah. Um, Speaking of um, secretaries of state, former secretary of state Madeleine Albright passed away today, yesterday. I think it was yesterday, yeah. Of COVID? No, I'm thinking of somebody else. No, I don't, I think she had she had she, some other ongoing issues. I think it was cancer, actually. Yeah, she well, and I mean, she had some controversial things during her career, but because we're not in a cult, we can right. respect the person. <laughs> we can also disagree with some of the things that they did, huh. Waco and things like that, because we're not in a cult. But right, um, but she still was the, the first woman. woman. Yeah, so. She was the first female secretary of state in the United States history. So, I mean, that's a big deal. Also, she was an immigrant that came over from Czechoslovakia with her family, I presume. Prague. So, uh, I I always think that's interesting. She used to collect... Go ahead, sorry. Yeah, just um, immigrants becoming um, powerful politicians. Yeah. Um, Uh She she collected, um, like, brooches Mm -hmm. and... And at the Denver Art Museum several years back, they had a um, exhibit of her pins. It was like she donated them all to museums so they could travel around so people could see them. Because a lot of them were gifts from heads of state from other countries. They had historical value and stuff like that. It was a really, it was a really neat exhibit. Yeah, that's interesting because um, um, Margaret did Margaret Thatcher have. No, I'm thinking of Queen Elizabeth. Queen Elizabeth has certain jewelry that indicates little kind of secret messages here and there. And um, then obviously Ruth Bader Ginsburg had a different collar for different things. Her, I, you know what? We need to do we need to do a little segment on this show about what her little collar codes meant. Yeah, that would be interesting. Yeah. <clears throat> oh, Ruth, we miss you. Um, <laughs> That was still one of the hardest days. Like I yeah. like my blood ran cold. Oh, that that and Betty White. It's yeah, just like yeah. really. She was yeah. just like, I'm not setting foot into this year. <laughs> <laughs> I am done. Good I'm luck. Done. Yeah. It is midnight on December 31st. Peace out, bitches. <laughs> oh. Anyway, um, let's see who else is in the news. You can take the next one. Um, I just want to say a word about Brittany Griner. Yeah. Everybody, um, so concerned about trans people swimming that we have, we have a citizen that's being detained in Russia. Um, she's not a white girl, so nobody's listening. Well, yeah. So why would we do anything? Um, she apparently had a, um, vape pen that had, um, hash in it, I guess, which I admit was dumb. Yes. 
on the other hand, come on. I mean, she's already been over there several weeks. It's like somebody really needs to. I mean, I feel like, you know, we're, we're sort of in a precarious position right now. Everybody's trying not to step on Russia's toes because we don't want to escalate the situation. But at the same time, come on. She's just, you know, she had a vape pen. Like, how yeah, long are you going to let her stay in prison over there? It's really petty and, and very frightening, honestly. Yes, terrifying. Yeah. There's so much about this Russia thing that is very scary. And, I mean, just being honest, um, I'm a very sensitive person, despite what I sound like on the show. <laughs> I'm not actually an asshole. Okay, I am. But I'm a very sensitive asshole. But anyway, that kind of went someplace. But anyway, uh, <laughs> <laughs> I have been having a really hard time with this russia ukraine thing um i just am very sad and worried and just you know feeling what i think all of us feel and it's just it's hard i'm not a fan of i'm not a fan of life on earth these days it's a real pain in the ass um yeah i mean and again with whenever things like this happen it's so uplifting to see some, you know, the people who are reaching out and helping and yeah. things like that. But it's still very sad to see. I mean, they're bombing hospitals, bomb, you know, and, yeah. you know, kids that are getting hurt and or killed, you know. I mean, it's just it's awful to see. Yeah. Speaking of which, I have uh, an Instagram thing that I can read that's relevant to this. Let me get the post up. So I don't know who the original poster of this is. I believe she's in Germany. But she has an Asian name, and I can't tell from her handle what exactly her name is. Sorry, but she's amazing. So here we go. Um, it's like a 10-slide little story here. It says, my phone rang and woke me up around 0.30. You volunteered to host refugees. Here is a mother with two kids and a cat. Can you host? Okay, when? Now. 15 minutes later, they arrived with a volunteer. I went down to welcome. We could communicate with Google Translate. The driver said he would like to help them carry up the luggage into the flat. The single bag they had was smaller than my laptop bag and the cat cage. I sensed he wanted to check inside. I showed him sleeping kids and ID to, ensure, to assure him. Uh, he smiled, gave me a phone number, and left. The family had been on the road for four days. How long can we stay? Let's sleep and talk tomorrow. A conversation in silence. The three and 15 year old were nervous. There's a bit of a language thing here. I'm sure you're figuring out, but it's still, you get it. I could not sleep. Now the war came home, I thought. Can we handle? The next morning, they woke up early and asked again, how long can we stay? I need health insurance for my son. He is sick. We need to be registered. I sensed a mom in max functioning mode. Before my work started, we rushed to get some urgent shopping to supply cat and kids. Then we gave her internet access and room to calm down after this journey. Once they realized being in security, they all slept all day and all night. Kids started to play without being able to verbally communicate. The cat would sleep on husband's desk. Sometimes people asked, isn't it difficult? No, at least I can give them something, a sense of comfort to people who were chased away from their home. My friends also need a place to stay. When I started the call to... Berliners on Twitter. I don't know if that's supposed to be Twitter. I don't know. The response was overwhelming and all families were distributed. Thank you all. Whenever she sensed such generosity and empathy, she would break down and cry without kids noticing. Unintended, I started to build up a little network of helpers across entire Germany who were taking them over 
once I forwarded. Can you host? Yes. When shall I pick up? Sometimes we did not know what their names were. We would just bring them to the station and tickets. The band of trust we all had was so strong. The people in need would travel across country with my phone number only with a certainty. They are being helped. We are all very moved. And when the little girl shadowing her mom every second held my hand, I cried. Yes, we were eight plus cat in our flat. We both have busy jobs and three little kids. Wasn't this overwhelming? No, I could do something in my own way. I cannot solve big problems, but giving them comfort helped me to focus, to focus on what actually is happening and how we live. When the war started to destroy on the other side, the band of empathy restored the faith. I am very grateful for all the silent helpers who acted unconditionally. I sensed so much love for them. They demonstrated the true value. I just that was an amazing story. Beautiful. Yeah, it makes me wish that I could do something. Right. I mean, even just small things that, you know, you see people, you know, leaving their shoes or leaving um, uh, strollers, strollers and stuff. Yeah, it's just I mean, certainly we can do something, you know, we can donate. There's there's very grassroots movements that you can donate to that just put right. money like practically directly in people's hands. And then there's larger organizations you can donate to that are doing all sorts of things. And I follow a historian on um, Instagram. Her name is Sharon. Hang on. Sharon, what is your name? Sharon McMahon. And she's her her thanks is America's government teacher. Um, I'm not sure how she came to this, but anyway, she has a podcast and her posts are amazing. She's just been um, posting her you know, like Venmo and PayPal for her followers, and she has nearly 843,000, not even a million. And her following has raised like nine hundred thousand dollars. <laughs> so every night um, she posts, you know, how much came in that day and how much she's splitting between two different um, <clears throat> organizations helping with Ukraine. And wow. it is so much money. It's unbelievable. I could be a little off on the number, but it's huge. It's huge considering that she doesn't have like a Kim Kardashian following, you know, 843,000 <laughs> followers is not you know, uh, going to break the internet, but oh my God, the amount of donations is just stunning. Right. So anyway, I mean, you should follow her. She's, her handle on Instagram is Sharon says so. Sharon says so. Okay. Um, I, you know how she's been breaking down this stuff in Ukraine and, and into little nice bite-sized pieces and stuff. It's, she's great. Right. You know how they were saying like, you know, you can try to rent uh, Airbnb mm -hmm. and you know it's just a way to send money directly Airbnb also waived those fees right I saw that stuff like that but when I went to do that I mean it was booked like months in advance oh, so wow. I, I think so many people you know went in there and did it so I, I mean I think it's great I think it's really I, I looked at a lot of different places yeah. you know like even you know in Ukraine and even in Romania yeah. places where I thought you you know they might go yeah. And I mean, a lot of places were booked out for months and months. So I thought it was great. Yeah, that's very cool. Yeah. People, people can be such amazing beings and then they can just be such puckered up, hateful assholes, you know? So. <laughs> but let's not talk about the Senate. <laughs> exactly. I know. The justice confirmation. I was actually thinking of Mitch McConnell as I said that literally. <laughs> um, 
but anyway, let's, um, well, we have one more that's sort of, um, sort of relevant to this. And then we've got a couple that aren't, um, the Taliban had said that they were going to open, um, I think it's secondary schools to Afghan girls and they have changed their mind and revoked that. So not surprising. No, not at all, but disappointing nonetheless. Yes. And then, well, this is not in lighter news in entertainment news. Um, it has been what 20 years since Halle Berry won for Monsters Ball, and there is still not another woman of color, black woman, I should say. I don't didn't do all the research. Um, who has won since her? And what the fuck is up with that? It, let me read some of the stuff from this because it mentioned. Um, did you see the movie Precious? Mm-hmm. That actress, can't think of her name. Gabourey Sidibe. <laughs> yeah. She should have won. I mean, but that's just like off the top of my head. There have been so many phenomenal performances from black women in the last 20 years. Are you kidding me? Well, I read that. I was just like, nobody from Hidden Figures or Help won. What like, the fuck? I didn't look it up, but I just like, those are two movies that came to mind. Right, you know? right. And sometimes in ensemble pieces like that, where there's a lot of really good actresses, it's sort of hard to pick one. And so maybe that's why sometimes people don't win, but still. Sure. But hello. Uh, yeah. I mean, in 20 years, are we saying, I mean, that's just right. it's absurd. The Academy needs to pull its head out of its very apparently white ass. Mm -hmm. um, and then I had one more bullet point that relates to entertainment news. This one's for you, Lee. <laughs> Oh, about the Oscars. Let me just say one more thing. Oh yeah. So the girl, the girl who played Maria in the remake of oh, West Side yeah. Story, which is nominated for a whole lot of things, somehow her invitation to the Oscars got lost. I guess. I don't know. Gee, mm. that's a weird oversight. But I was like, mm. okay. Uh, but she, she was like very gracious about it. She was like, I don't know why I didn't get invited. I just didn't, and I, I'll still cheer on my teammates and you know, castmates. I guess you'd say. Well, I don't know if you intended that to be a segue, but it is. Um, there's apparently a new musical coming out, which I know that you love, um, about suffragists. So um, it's called Suffs. Tells the suffragist tale in song. <laughs> which is a weird... I'm not logged in, so you'll have to read that one. <laughs> the stupid New York Times. Yeah, it's. I, I can't get into it either. I was just going okay. to the headline. Anyway, New York Times, we'd like to talk about your musical, but even though we're both members. <laughs> right. Not Hi, New York Times. I'm a paid subscriber, and yes. I would like very much to support journalism. And so I pay fees, and I still can't get behind your goddamn paywall. So, like, can you just remember who I am when I log in each time? Like, every other internet site, like, oh, I don't know, Sephora, who's happy to let me back in or Ulta or Amazon or any of the other places. Sometimes when I log into New York Times, though, it's like I, I'll click on the story and I'll say, oh, you have to log in to read this. And I'll log in. And then it takes me a whole other place. I know. Not to the story that I wanted to read. So I'm just, yeah. what am I New York Times, get your shit together. Because we really like your articles, but your uh, internet action is, it sucks, man. <laughs> no. no good. Anyway, all right. Well, I think that's all the news that we can deal with tonight. Um, okay. But on Bitchstery, we're on lesson 19. If you just want to flip ahead to your little books and that page in your book, um, <laughs> we're going meta tonight, not in a in a in a Facebook 
Zuckerberg, Fuckerberg kind of way. We're going meta in that we are doing during Women's History Month on a podcast about women's history. We're going to talk about women historians. And so this little this I was going to call it a little nesting Russian nesting doll, but I don't feel like using that term now. <laughs> anyway, let's just talk about female historians, shall we? Let's. These ladies, among others, have been uh, in academia discounted for many reasons. I, I mean, we started this show to talk about um, women who don't get talked about in history, but beyond that, people historians don't get talked about, <laughs> or, their, or their or their research gets dismissed. Yeah, it's just like, exactly. oh, that's cute. Your book yeah. is cute, um, but Your you book. know, who does a girl have to top to get some recognition from the academia? I don't know. Um, yeah. but we, Kelly and I shared a meme, um, earlier this week, I guess, that was from a, um, history student at Oxford. And, um, there was an artifact that they had that was a bone that had 28 scar marks on it. And it was often touted as man's first attempt at a calendar. And so everybody's like, okay, they're scribbling that down in their notes. And then, but the professor says, however, I would like to say that it's probably women's first attempt at a calendar because what man needs to count out 28 days for what reason? Yeah. And it just, you know, for that, for that person and, you know, for, for me too, it just was like, okay, it makes, it makes sense that there's probably a lot of things that, um, you know, a lot of been overlooked. Yeah. Well, but they come through the lens of masculinity I masculinity. think like I the one that comes to mind for me is the um, Venus of Willendorf the um little statue and it's just like very kind of voluptuous woman big breasts wide hips whatever so that's always been called a um fertility goddess uh-huh. but Margaret Mead and some other female historians have said that's like grandma I mean, and if you look at it, it's just kind of like, okay, that's an older woman. She's got wider hips, like fuller, saggier breasts, you know what I mean? And mm-hmm. it's like, you know, but she was important to the village too. It wasn't just like, oh, she's sexy. She's a fertility goddess, <laughs> yeah. you know? So anyway. I was just listening to um, Glennon Doyle's podcast today and she was this week or today's episode, whenever it was, they were talking about aging mm-hmm. and how they're pro-aging and this whole conversation around aging. So um the fact that, you know, grandma even got a statue. <laughs> so, um, I don't know, remarkable to me and, you know, the current culture that we live in. Because, you know, I mean, you grew up with Disney movies. I'm getting off track here. You grew up with Disney movies and, and you're sort of taught that 50 years old, you have some like silver bun on your head. And I'm here to tell you that that's not not the case for any of the 50 year olds I know and I'm almost one myself so I but I, I hate how like every and they've and this has changed recently I think but I like every female heroine in Disney movie has to turn into a princess <sighs> like even Mulan who was is a like that's a you know fairy tale from China uh-huh. she like the whole part of her like marrying the dude is not part of the story like they had to add that in. It's just like, isn't it enough that she saved China and killed people? Right. No, no, they had to make it fit into the Disney she's templates. She's now a princess because she's married to, yeah. Because that's what we should all aspire to. Mm. Um, yeah, I don't want to be a princess. I am the queen, damn it. <laughs> so anyway, 
So anyway, yeah, yeah, lots of female historians that get overlooked simply because they are women and their research gets, you know, pushed to the bottom of the pile or whatever happens in academia. Um, so we have a list of some really cool ones. And then we had one in particular that we were going to talk about. And her name is Gerda Lerner. I love saying her name. It's very catchy. <laughs> Gerda Lerner. Gerda Lerner. I feel like it should be, there. Sh she should be a character in a musical. Gerda, Gerda Lerner. <laughs> <laughs> in case you don't know, I absolutely detest musicals. I have a dance background. I love music in general. Just not a fan of musicals. Straight. I liked Les Miserables. I, I, I support LGBTQ and all of those things. I just can't get down with the musicals. I just find them super annoying. But Lisa, of course, <laughs> loves all of them. So, see. I can relate pretty much any historical event or even just happening in everyday life to a musical. <laughs> and it and must, will if you're near me. Oh, God. God help me. It must be genetic, though, because <clears throat> I, I really tried to get on the Hamilton bandwagon. I'm like, okay, okay. Get your shit together, Kelly. You can do it. And I just could not. And then my daughter, who's 14, she was 13 at the time. Um, she was over at a friend's house who was just like a rabid fan of Hamilton, like most people seem to be. And um, she came home. She's like, I tried to watch it. I thought it was boring and stupid. I'm like, me too. Okay. So I, it must be just our defective DNA. DNA. So anyway. It's okay. Girl, girl learner. Now, okay. So you want to do her first? Sure. Okay. Um, so this is the biography from her um, website. So it's sort of lengthy, but I feel like it's all relevant. So I'm just going to go through it as quick as I can. Or do, you can go part of it if you want. But No, no, you go ahead. So I've been chatting was... quite a bit. I'm going to drink my drink. <laughs> okay. Um, so she was born in 1920, unfortunately passed away in 2013. Uh, Gerda is considered the single most influential figure in the development of women's and gender history since the 1960s. Over 50 years, a field that encompassed a handful of brave and potentially marginal historians became one with thousands and expanded from Lerner's development of an MA program at Sarah Lawrence College to the pre presence of women's history faculty in the great majority of U.S. colleges and university. Uh, in the university that I went to, we did have a women's studies program. Yep. Um, okay, she was born Gerda Hedwig Kronstein to a wealthy Jewish family in Vienna in 1920. Her father, her family was typical of the Jewish bourgeoisie in Central Europe. I don't know what that means. <laughs> it's kind of, it's kind of like a weird comment, isn't they it? You bougie. Yeah, they were like, they're middle class, okay, all right. Mm, yeah. um, but also most in, unconventional in the way that their class status allowed. Her autobiography, Fireweed, offers a vivid picture of her family and household. Her father, Robert, was an ambitious young army officer who married a woman with a substantial dowry, which he used to establish a profitable pharmacy and a pharmaceutical factory. Her mother, Elona, soon became a bohemian, an advocate of sexual freedom, vegetarianism, and yoga. Ooh. Scary lady. She's a witch. Murder. <laughs> which scandalized Robert's mother. I bet it did. Stick up her butt. <laughs> she became determined to save, save is in quotes, her granddaughters from Alona's influence, which is unfortunate because I think Alona sounds awesome. Yeah. 
Since they lived in separate apartments in the same large house, Gerda experienced continual raging battles between the two women. Alona won one battle in naming Gerda's younger sister Nora after the Ibsen play. Alona was miserable in this house, and it's hard to tell how much due to her mother-in-law and how much with her husband, who was far more rigid and upright than she was. Alona wanted a divorce, but would have lost custody of her children if she insisted. So she managed instead to talk Robert into a legal contract, redefining their relationship. Hmm. They would continue the appearance of a contract defining their relationship, or sorry, they would continue the appearance of a marriage, but would leave, lead separate lives as long as they were discreet. And Alona was granted several months vacation away from the home each year. She lived thereafter in a room marked off from the rest of the apartment. <laughs> I was thinking like this, like Les Nesman, that tape. Oh yeah, yeah. Tape on the floor, don't yeah, go across crossover. That's okay, funny. so Gerda and Nora had to make appointments to see their mother. The girls were, of course, she doesn't sound very warm and fuzzy, but hey, she's doing the best she could. The girls were, of course, raised by a string of nannies and governesses. Alona developed an increasingly bohemian lifestyle, nurturing an interest in avant-garde art. She bought a separate studio where she entertained, quote-unquote, entertained uh -huh. a succession of young boyfriends while Robert kept a mistress in a separate apartment where he spent most of his evenings. These familial arrangements gave Gerda early exposure to female independence, along with the entitlements, tastes, and unconventionality that the Kronstein class position allowed. She became, she wrote, a naughty girl. <laughs> Misbehaving both at home and at school, even flirting with Catholicism. Gasp. At age 10, <laughs> she was enrolled in a gymnasium for girls, where she thrived on the academically demanding environment. As she entered her teenage years, she increasingly sided with her mother and began to see her as a victim of societal restrictions. As I said, stick up her butt. Under the influence of some teachers and friends, she was discovering cultural and political radi radicalism, listening to jazz and reading modernist literature. She read Tolstoy and Gorky, listened to Louis Armstrong and Bessie Smith, mm -hmm. and became a devotee, devotee of anti-fascist satirist Karl Krauss. In 1934, a virtual civil war broke out in Vienna between Nazis and leftist workers, some of it so close to her home that she could hear the machine gun fire. At 15, she got a boyfriend of whom her father disapproved. That's pretty much everyone at 15. Sorry, right. Dad. Yeah, exactly. Which naturally ignited her. I didn't, but, you know. Uh, <laughs> I was just going to ask. <laughs> which naturally ignited her passion for him and for his older brother in absentia, who was fighting fascism in Spain. She began reading and sometimes distributed left newspapers and leaflets. She volunteered for Red Aid, a system of getting help to the families of those arrested and exiled. In the summer of 1936, eager to separate her from dangerous friends, her father sent her to stay with an English family to learn the language. As it happened, they turned out to be Mosley supporters and anti-Semites. No good. Yeah. Gerda got her father's permission to leave and attend a youth camp run in Wales by the eminent scientist and columnist J.B.S. Haldane where she soaked up Marxism. She learned about it by striking up a conversation on a train with a woman reading The Daily Worker. Obviously not a timid young girl. <laughs> just... Many Jews began fleeing after the Anschluss of March 1938, and her father joined them after being warned that he would be arrested. He had previously established a business in Liechtenstein, which established him later to bring his family there. Mm -hmm. But soon after he left, the Stromlöngtag S.A., the stormtroopers, uh, arrived at the Kronstein house searching, they said, for subversive books. 
this could be like today in I was just thinking Florida that. or Texas. I was just literally thinking that. Yeah. There was a library and I can't think of her name who got fired just today for not removing books that they told they said were dang, quote unquote dangerous. And this is in Austin that happened. Yeah. Okay. Anyway, okay. A month after that, they came with a warrant for his arrest. In his absence, they arrested Gerda and her mother. <laughs> it's like, why not? Seeking to use them to force the father to return. They were held for six weeks and then finally released only after Robert sold his Austrian assets to Gentiles for a pittance. In prison, the two were separated. Um, Fireweed details the horrors of their incarceration. Mm. Greta believes she survived only because some communist cellmates shared their food with her. She also believed in that these experiences as a Nazi resistor and imprisoned teenager were the most formative influences of her life. She arrived in the U.S. in 1939. A young radical traveling alone, met by the boyfriend from Vienna, Bernard Jensen, who sponsored her as his fiance. They married and moved into his circle of German-speaking anti-fascist refugees. In 1940, they divorced civilly. The marriage had been mainly a means of getting her into the U.S. She soon met Carl Lerner, a communist theater director. They fell in love, and in 1941, she married him. They moved to Los Angeles, where he became a successful film editor. Immersed in the Hollywood left, <laughs> not new, I guess, mm -hmm. she defined herself as a writer in anti-fascist themes. She began to write short stories, one of which was published in a left-wing California literary journal called The Clipper. That's where the L.A. Clippers are from. <laughs> in 1943, she became a citizen, but not without telling off an INS official who pointed out that she had previously been listed as an enemy alien. Those who knew her will recognize her prickly, tolerant, no-disrespect style, her instinct to fight. Having mastered the English language with aston astonishing rap rapidity, she collaborated with Carl on some screenplays, including Black Like Me in 1964, which he then directed. Their daughter Stephanie was born in 1946, Dan in 1947. She soon became a national leader in the Congress of American Women. Attached as a CP-identified Women's International Democratic Federation and was influenced by communist theorists and male chauvinism, such as Mary Inman. With the CAW, she worked with poor black women and began to understand the limitations of her own middle-class assumptions. Everybody got to examine their own privilege. Mm -hmm. It's your responsibility. McCarthyism hit the learners hard. When Carl Lerner's career was destroyed by Hollywood blacklist, they returned to New York with their two children. Carl found film editing work through friends and Gerda remained active in community struggles, but they left the CP. As for many American progressives, the McCarthyist perse persecutions were frightening and left a residue of caution among progressives. For Gerda, however, cautiousness did not come easy. Although in the next few decades, she hid her communist past, she remained loyal to her friends and furious at the friendly, quote-unquote friendly, witnesses who denounced others in the House Un-American Activities Committees, the engines of the McCarthyist hysteria and persecution of dissenters. She continued activism in other spheres. She increasingly turned her attention to women's groups such as Parent Teach Association and Lessons of Mary Inman took her 20 years later into the National Organization of Women, the NOW. Um, many younger feminists of the women's liberation movement that emerged several years later thought of the NOW women as liberal rather than leftist, but this was off the mark. NOW included more blacks, more union women, and more leftists than was recognized. I need, I need to understand the difference. What is the difference? Between leftists and liberals? Liberal. Mm -hmm. 
Um, liberals are more like, um, I think they're more sort of like the social programs of it. Big government. And then leftist is more sort of the subversive undermining government. That's how I understand it anyway. Okay. Like undermining okay. government processes and things like that. I have another related question. Okay. I can wait if you want me to ask it later. Either way. Um, I don't, it's interesting to me that communist gets thrown around a lot these days, but here in this story, we have a woman who was influenced by communist theories of male chauvinism, which I don't even understand what that means. That seems weird to me, but who was influenced by communist teachings and theories, but was fighting against fascist Nazism. And I think myself included, people don't understand the difference between fascism and communism. I, I've read about it a million times. <clears throat> one is a form of government and one is a philosophy. But um, I think it's interesting that communists would be fighting against fascists. Am I crazy? Well, communists, well fascists are more communism is sort of like nobody's in charge. Everybody's equal and everybody, you know, everybody's just mm -hmm. sharing. Fascism is like a small group of people is in charge and we're allocating your assets to who we see. What's where's socialism in this in this and socialism is more I feel like communism and socialism are more um, related, but communism is sort of more like we're ever like everybody sharing assets where socialism is sort of like the government's in charge of all the assets. I thought it was the they're other way around. They're allocating them fairly to I thought communist was the government owned everything and allocated it. Socialism was everybody owns all the things. Well, communism, they don't, they, like the government doesn't own this, like own the stuff. I don't think I feel like more time more socialism is more sort of like government is in charge of like the money, you know, like where the, they, they budget it fairly among everybody for taking care of healthcare, taking care of, you know, yeah. the, the state basically. It's nuanced, though, and that wasn't ever really taught when I was in school taking history. They just throw these words around and they never really, you know, stop to teach us what any of them meant. And then um, then you throw <clears throat> what was the one I was just asking about? Fascism. Fascism. Yeah, well, I mean, all of these those three terms get thrown around in today's political circles like crazy. Mm -hmm. Because, you know, God forbid we should have a nationalized healthcare system because we're all fascists. No, that's not what that even means, you idiot. It's socialism. <laughs> yeah. Well, fascism also is more author authoritarian. Right. It's like, um, and communism also has some authoritarian things where they, certain people are appointed as leaders. Oh, I had it. I had it backwards. Yeah. Fascism is so, government and socialism is more of a philosophy theory. Uh, yeah, we should do. We can do a show about that. Like all, we should. Like, give examples of all three. I mean, and pretty much every, like socialism, communism, all those things. They all like they all on paper. They all work. Mm -hmm. But every system, including democracy and capitalism, it's toppled by greed. Basically, greed. well, and <laughs> that's I mean, the all, thing. All the systems on paper are fair. Like you right. know, they're right. they're allocated different ways and run different ways. But oh, yeah, trickle all down. Where they get effed up too. is somebody like Agreed. i don't want it to i want it to be fair except for i want to have more well it's a trickle down works on paper too but not in real life exactly, exactly yeah um you know a lot of our problems right now are because of unchecked just rampant rapid 
rabid, all kinds of word capitalism that just is out of control. But, you know, people don't want to hear that because then they think that, you know, you need to be burned at the stake for being a fascist or a socialist or they don't even know what kind of ist you are. It just pisses people off. Well, I mean, as far as like the gas prices and stuff like that, like I've tried to illustrate online, you know, like here are the like the stock prices of each Mm -hmm. of like five different um, oil companies. And here's the price of oil and here's the price of gas and how like they should relate, but they don't. But everybody just some people are just like, okay, I get it. And then other people are just like, it's Biden. Okay, but so so um. I still know people who think that Trump is the real president. And so I asked someone yesterday, well, is it his fault that gas prices are so high then? Blink, 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 blink. Um, I didn't get a positive response. But um, <laughs> anyway, we can. it's a very nuanced conversation, in my opinion, about these types of governments and philosophies and what's the difference between a philosophy and a government and what was what and who was who. And I just feel like history in school really does a terrible job of teaching some of that. But I also, so you're used to be in marketing or you are in marketing or whatever. So there's three different, basically, um, platforms for marketing. One is fear of loss. Mm -hmm. And I feel like that's what they try to do. Like Mm -hmm. these people are coming for your stuff. Mm -hmm. Immigrants, if we didn't have to pay teachers so much, we could do all these things, whatever. It's fear of loss. Right. And, you know, the, the unionized workers, that's the reason why you got to pay more for a Big Mac. And then right. there is um, possibility of gain. And so that's, you know, like, if you do these things, you could get more. But I just feel like the fear-based one, and then third was logic, which almost never gets used because nobody wants to do that. What the hell is logic? <laughs> I know. It's too hard to draw those parallels and make people listen. I've never, in all of my years doing marketing, known anyone to use logic in a campaign ever. Right. It's the least yeah. used because it's the least successful, unfortunately. But yeah. fear of loss is one of the more successful ones. And that's why demonizing mm-hmm. literally anyone could be trans swimmers. It could be, you know, but like the thing that is insane to me is like, they're like, oh, that little boy who walked 600 miles or 300 yeah. miles or whatever for six days. And like, thank God he got to the border. It's like, do you know what happens if he like would have come from like Nicaragua and showed up at our border? Right. Yeah. You know what would be happening to him right now? He's in a dog kennel. Yeah. Yeah. It's like, oh, but I mean, it's just amazing to me how people can't draw those parallels. Refugees oh. and refugees, people fly, fleeing from, you know, difficult situations. Oh, yeah. But, our, our selective blindness and deafness in this country is remarkable. Ridiculous. Yeah. Okay. So anyway, as I was, as I got to this point in the article, I was like, holy crap. Because (laughs) at this point it says at the age of 38, like all that stuff happened to her before she was 38. Right. So at the age of 38, Gerda enrolled in college and then graduated school at Columbia, earning both a BA and PhD in six years. Overachiever. Right. Driven by her developing concern with race and women and excuse me, defying warnings and belittlement from those who argued for a more conventional and high-status topic, Greta wrote a PhD dissertation about the white abolitionist Grimka sisters, children of South Carolina slaveholders. They were the star anti-slavery activists of their era, as well as early women's rights activists. We need, we'll be talking about them on a future show. Yeah. At the time, the only other historian working in the 19th century women, 19th century women's rights movement was Eleanor Flexer, also, not incidentally, a communist. 
Dun, dun, dun. <laughs> I feel like the reason why, like, especially in the 60s, a lot of people, you know, like, who were around the Black Panthers, like, were communists is because the communist, like, communists were the only ones who were, um, I feel like they were just using that as a word to just, like, they weren't capitalists. You know what I mean? Yeah, I just like, feel like it was... They weren't all trying to... You know, they yeah. were just all about profit. They were just sort of about, like, how do we take care of this whole thing? But a lot of food pantries that happen now use the Black Panthers model. Like, the Black Panthers are one of the first people who, like, came up with a food pantry for neighborhoods. Really? And a lot of food pantries, even the government's ones that are run now, use that model that they had about, um, you know going based on need as far as like not just like here's a bag of food it's basically oh. like okay how many people are living in your household okay you're allowed to come this many times oh wow you can get you know this x amount of things you can get you know whatever mm. and my dad um, volunteers at a food pantry and they use that same model today yeah there's so much overlap in history between things like communism and you know race rights and it's very I wish that history had been this interesting to me when I was growing up. <clears throat> My dad was a history major. He would be happy that I am interested in history, although probably somewhat verklempt about all the feminism, but <laughs> I digress. Anyway, go ahead. Okay. Um, okay, so they're talking about Eleanor Flexer, who's not incidentally a communist as well. Dun, dun, this dun. affiliation flowed directly from the fact that in the 1930s, 40s, and 50s, the only political group in the U.S. to raise concerns about sex discrimination other than the tiny National Women's Party, very tiny, I'm sure, mm -hmm. was the Communist Party. Lerner's choice of dissertation topic was a masterpiece of caution, ambition, and left politics. The U.S. CP had been for several decades committed to challenging racism and recruiting blacks. It was the only white group to defend Scottsboro Boys and its Black Nation program, um, though Foolish kept racism in focus. In Chicago in the 1930s, for example, 25% of its membership was Black. By writing about white women who spoke and agitated courageously and eloquently against slavery, Gerda was discussing the, ra the racial roots of the American political economy, furthering her goal of organizing women and producing an innovative piece of work. With Lerner's characteristic ambition and chutzpah, she went to a high-status trade publisher, Hofton, Hofton Mifflin. I just think that's like the, <laughs> the thing on the office. With Dunder, her dissertation, Dunder Mifflin, yeah. Uh, they're Dunder Mifflin. Okay, with her dissertation and published it only a year after earning her PhD. That achievement also reflected her fine writing style in her second language, no doubt. She devoted the rest of her life to women's and African-American history, bringing it to two aspects of her Marxist education and organizing experience a relentless focus on power and a grasp of the interrelatedness of its various forms, class, race, and sex. After her book on the Grimkas and her 1969 article, The Lady and the Mill Girl, examined class differences among women in the Jacksonian U.S. Most influential, however, was her 1972 Black Women in White America, a collection of primary sources. African-American history was a growing field, but nothing about Black women was available. Shocker! Mm -hmm. Daughters thought, as they had done about women's history in general, that a lack of sources made black women's history impossible. So Lerner's book was a political act and eye-opener. Mm -hmm. it, it proved that African-American women's history could be written. Becoming a historian did not disrupt Lerner's identity as a writer. In 1955, she published a novel focused on Vienna just before the German occupation called No Farewell. She collaborated with her good friend Eve Merriam on a musical. I need to be excited about that. Uh. 
called The Singing of Women, produced Damn, off-Broadway singing in commies. 1951. <laughs> Toward the end of her life, she wrote an autobiography of her early years called Fireweed, which we've talked about, which reads like a novel. Writing, it was not easy for her because it required revisiting the horrors of Nazism and her childhood of loneliness. But awesome grandma. But like all of her writing, or mom, I guess, but like all of her writing, it's also a history because she understood all stories, including that of her own life, as shaped by historical structures and events. In writing her autobiography, she did meticulous research, aware that memory, if fallible, a lesson all historians should take in. Meanwhile, she continued organizing, this time with the Academy. In her first job at Sarah Lawrence College, she quickly recognized that merely teaching women's history would not be enough to build respect for the field. And she strategized to build women's history programs with high visibility. Doing this often meant fighting major battles and administrators and faculty members. The battles both resisted on and built built her toughness and at times overbearingness. She began teaching at Sarah Lawrence College in 1968 and worked to establish with Joan Kelly an MA program there, which still continues. Twelve years later, she won a professorship at the University of Wisconsin over significant opposition where she built the, the country's first PhD program in women's history. She loved her Madison community and spent her last years there. She lectured widely on the importance of women's history, often in an inspirational rather than academic vein. Understanding this as a political, as this work as political organizing. If you're tired, I can take over. <laughs> Go ahead. Okay. While she was teaching at Sarah Lawrence, Carl Lerner developed a malignant brain tumor. He died in 1973. After nursing him through this early and miserable death, Gerda wrote a powerful and painfully honest memoir a Death of One's Own, 1978. It spoke of their relationship, of his right to know the full facts of his illness, of the violence and mystery of death. She never remarried. Two related intellectual and personal understandings marked Lerner's career, a visceral grasp of how power worked and a sense of the relatedness of various forms of inequality and oppression, class, race, gender, and global imperialism. It was this astute sense of power that underlay her strategy work to train women's historians whose numbers and quality could make them non-ignorable. The same understanding also formed the ground of both her scholarship and her advocacy. At Wisconsin, she took the job only on the condition that the history department hire a second faculty member in the field, and she brought me there, what, in 1984. <laughs> I think that's he was writing this. Okay. I had the privilege of working with her daily. Oh, yeah, then it all the sudden Linda, shifts Linda to like first name. person. Um, <laughs> I had the privilege of working with her daily for 16 years, and we played bad cop, good cop quite effectively. The visibility of both the Sarah Lawrence and Wisconsin programs attracted top-notch students who were willing to take the risks of earning degrees in a new field because they were pursuing graduate work, not merely as job training but also out of a commitment to social movements for social to movements for social justice at Wisconsin. For example, the women's history program required outreach work by PhD students. They organized regular women's history lectures aimed at a broad public aimed at a broad public and developed a project for bringing women's history into the public schools, producing several slideshows with scripts, this was well before the days of PowerPoint at both high, why is that relevant? At both high school and <laughs> elementary school levels on women's work. Yes, things existed before PowerPoint. Thank you. <laughs> Overhead projector much? Um, women in sports and women's activism 
which they then <clears throat> presented in public school classes. Why is this happening? <clears throat> After the Grimke book, learners' teaching and scholarship never again focused on the relatively few elite or successful women who became historically well-known. Her 1969 article, <clears throat> The Lady and the Mill Girl, examined class differences among women in the Jacksonian U.S., probably the first such piece within the second wave of women's historians to do so. Colonel Lerner won awards far too numerous to mention, including Austria's highest, the Cross of Honor for Science and Art in 1996. She is survived by her sister, Nora Kronstein Rosen, an acclaimed artist of Tel Aviv, her son, Dan Lerner, film director, producer, and cinematographer of Los Angeles, and her daughter, Stephanie Lerner Lapidus, Lap Lapidus, whatever. Sorry, Steph, a psychotherapist of Durham, North Carolina, and four grandchildren to whom she was intensely devoted. Um, there's so much that we could just pull out of this one article to do shows on. There's right. just so much. But basically, she was a groundbreaker. I was, when you were talking about um, her mother being cool, well, she had to make appointments to see her mother, too. So <laughs> her mother was entertaining many young boyfriends, and the kids had to make appointments to see her. So, I mean, frankly, I find that to be admirable. <laughs> and uh, the appointment, the appointment concept, I might just implement. <laughs> I can show you how to set up that Google Calendar thing so they can get on and <laughs> sign up for times. Yeah, it's probably too late now. I should have started this when they were much younger, but um, I like the idea. <laughs> I had an English teacher in high school who wouldn't let us just raise our hand. We weren't allowed to just raise our hand. And then if we would sit there with our arms falling off because we had to pee or we needed to, to ask a question about the assignment, her desk was in the back of the room. And um, she would say, we'd go, Mrs. Brown, Mrs. I know my name. If you have a question, may submit it to my desk on a piece of binder paper. Uh, binder paper. And so we were freshmen in high school and we had never experienced anything like this ever. And um, she was mean as hell. My first re first referral I ever got in my whole life was from this woman. And I was pissed. And I burst into my counselor's office in raging tears. And he and I were like best friends for four years after that. <laughs> anyway, I was just outraged that she had the audacity to write me a referral. And those were the words I used as a freshman in high school, by the way. So um <laughs> Anyway, I became very skilled at um, impersonating her when she was out of the room. And um, my friends were, my classmates were big fans. So somebody would literally be the lookout and I'd get up in front of the room and go, I know my name. Please submit your questions on a piece of binder paper. And she wasn't British in any way, shape or form. That's just how she talked. Anyway. Like North Atlantic sort of, accent. I don't know what it was. She was <laughs> crazy as a shithouse rat but R.A.P. Mrs. Brown. Um, anyway, that whole appointment thing just made me think of that, I think. <laughs> anyway, very interesting. Um, what a history this woman has just in and of herself. Yeah. Let alone I mean, what she wrote about. <laughs> well, it'd be interesting to see like if her and Betty Friedan collaborated mm -hmm. on, you know, or what they collaborated on or, you know, we can talk about that in another show for sure. It would be interesting I wonder what the little mm, like disagreements were in the feminist movement, you know, because I'm sure there were plenty. Yes, I'm sure. That would be Star an interesting things. thing. Hmm? <laughs> What'd you say? 
I said strong opinions, I'm sure. Oh yeah. And just different ways of approaching things. And yeah, we should definitely look into that too. Sure. Um, well, we also have, so we have, um, somebody's list of top 10 female historians who put this list together. I don't know what's at the bottom of the page. Um, I will put this and some other stuff in the show notes as, as well as, um, the Sharon says, so her Instagram tags, you can follow her. And, um, yeah, if any of these people are on like social media, it would be great to follow them. I think just so we can all get smarter. So, uh, you want me to rattle through this list or you want to take turns? Uh, sure. Uh, we can, we'll, if you, if your voice is up to it, you can do the whole thing or we can take turns if you don't feel like it will be. We're cool. Okay. Well, my voice I, is what I, it I is. I add one too. Just okay. to the end. So go ahead. Um, yeah, my voice is what it is. I don't have a clue what passive aggressive nonsense is happening in my throat <laughs> chakra. But anyway, um, number one on the list is Professor Kate Williams. She is professor of public engagement with history at the University of Reading. Reading? Reading or Reading? Reading, yeah. Um, you'll probably recognize her from her numerous TV appearances. TV appearances. I don't recognize her at all, but I anyway. Think she's, she's in the UK. Oh, okay. Well, that would explain it. <laughs> I don't subscribe to BritBox. <laughs> um, next. I'm scrolling through text. Hallie Rubenhold. American-born Hallie is an author, social historian, broadcaster, and historical consultant for TV and film. Has also worked in the com commercial art world for Philip Mould as an assistant curator for the National Portrait Gallery. Wow, these women just make me feel like a slacker. Doesn't she look young? <laughs> she looks like she's about 20. That's pretty she's much what I was yeah. getting at. Like I'm like, wow, I need it do something with my life. Dr. Fern Riddle or Riddell, Riddle, Riddle is a cultural historian specializing in entertainment, sex, and the suffragettes in Victorian and Edwardian Britain. Well, that is a very niche specialty. <laughs> um, again, I think she is British because I'm not recognizing any of these references. And she also is beautiful and quite young. Not that that matters. Dr. Estelle Parenke. Parenke. Okay, we'll go with that. Estelle is a lecturer in early modern history at New College of the Humanities. Um, yada, yada. Mm -mm. She's written some stuff. Again, I'll put all this stuff in the show notes. Dr. Ooh, this is a name. Janina? Janina, Dr. Janina Ramirez, hmm. goth queen Janina, is a cultural historian and person I need to be friends with, broadcaster and author, mainly specializing in Anglo-Saxon and early medieval England. She's also, oh, this is written in the first person, so. <laughs> um, yeah, I feel like I need to go have drinks with that one. Yeah, I'd have drinks with her for sure. <laughs> <laughs> that's Talk a whole thing, go on. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> Dr. Nicola Tallis, newly made Dr. Nicola's fast becoming a favorite historian. Um, this is all British stuff. She writes about early modern British history with a recent doctoral thesis about the jewelry collections of the Queens of England. I really, really should have been a history major. 
It's a very strange picture. Uh, I know. My, um, like, if I was going to go further, like, get a master's or PhD or whatever. Yeah. I really want to do, I would do art history. I just think that's so interesting. I mean, it, it, like, history is interesting, but I really, th I would concentrate on art history, I think. Um, why are all these women just like hot? Like, I feel like the writer of this article had um, a, a, a motivation here. Dr. Susanna Lipscomb. Um, again, a face I don't recognize. Somebody I'm... else we could have drinks with. Dude, sure. this woman is gorgeous. Yeah. What the hell? Um, she likes witches. Oh, sorry. Oh, is that what she writes about? <laughs> yeah. Oh, her specialist subject is history of witchcraft oh damn that's fucking cool anyway um tessa dunlop oh tessa's such a british name love it um what is her deal mainly focus on 20th century women's history but her first love is romanian history wow that's very niche also Vlad. also beautiful one um dr lucy worsley um, joint chief curator at historic royal palaces. Well, what a slacker she must be. <laughs> Damn. Um, she's cheeky and she has tons of personality. So says the author of this list. Um, and finally, Dr. Emma Wells. Jesus. Good Lord. Goddess looking woman. <laughs> this is weird. Last but by no means least is Dr. Emma Wells, an expert in pilgrimage studies, which, you know, looking at her, you just go, she looks like she might know something about pilgrimage. <laughs> Ecclesiastical or heart. Damn. Picture. Yeah. Anyway, so. Everybody knows historians are the hottest girls. Get on with it. <laughs> I didn't until today, but <laughs> damn. I mean, seriously, you guys are, this is a podcast. You can't see this, but uh, every one of these 10 women is like, really beautiful yeah. it's a little freakish <laughs> anyway i believe that concludes our list of badass women historians i need to add um, one more oh yeah, yeah go. just it, those of you know me which many of you don't um <laughs> no i'm obsessed with egypt oh yeah so there is an egyptologist egyptologist historian her name is kara cooney and egypt uh, even though, you know, it's all about pharaohs and stuff like that, is also um, one of the most interesting as far as women having power mm -hmm. in certain times. They're not afraid to cut a bitch if they need to take power. Um, but she wrote a few good books. One of them was When Women Ruled the World, and it's about six queens of Egypt. And then another one, it's just specifically about a ship set, um, which is called The Woman Who Would Be King, which mm. if you're interested in Egyptology at all, I highly recommend. She's also beautiful. Put it in the uh, notes and I'll put it in the show notes. Okay. In the, Oops, yeah. So I don't know if you guys know this, but if you go to, when you go to the podcast, if you look through like the blah, blah, blah text um, in most of the shows, I will put down the sources that we used or just various lists and work cited sort of info because it's not like we write this shit ourselves. We just have a podcast and talk about things that other people have written, okay? Um, for the most part. Anyway, so yeah, check out the notes and um, get yourself some badass women to follow. <clears throat> so yeah, that concludes our, our deep dive into women's history during women's, his no, women's historians during Women's History Month on this Women's History Podcast.
I'm, I need a nap. <laughs> um, yeah, so I think that's it. Um, I don't know what we're doing in two weeks. Are we going to do... Uh, I don't know. We talked about it off the air and now I've already forgotten, but I think that wraps it up. Uh, this week's meta bitch story about bitch historians. And I uh, hope you learned something new. I learned lots. And I also learned that I need to learn a lot more. So I. History is so. I'm a never ending student. Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. Uh, this podcast uploads every two weeks. If you enjoy this podcast, please give us a five star review on Apple or Spotify or considering sponsoring us so we can t- continue keep being bitch historians. Um, check out anchor.fm forward slash bitchstory and look for the support button. If you don't like this podcast, then you can just walk away. It's fine. Just walk Keep away. Keep it to yourself. Keep you it don't to need yourself. to leave a shitty review. Mm-hmm. Your life will go on. Fight with somebody else on Instagram. You can email us at kelly at thebitchwhisper.me until I get a better email address. Or you can find us on Instagram at bitchstory.pod. You can follow us over there. We would greatly appreciate that. Thanks for hanging out with us, bitches. Thanks for hanging out with us, bitches, bitches. There you go. Thanks for listening. Have a great week. Go make bitch three.